Good morning, and we will continue on in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This is a two-part series. Ryan Randolph last week preached Genesis 1. I'm going to continue on. But before I read Genesis chapter 2, I want to just hit at the heart of last week's message that Ryan preached. In the heart of it, in a word of Genesis 1 and 2, is worship. It's worship. What, what is the point of Genesis 1? We could say it this way. The point of Genesis 1 is not how, like how the world came into existence. The point of Genesis 1 is not when, when exactly was the earth created. But the point is the who and the, and the why. Who is this God? Who is this God? This is the God that spoke everything into existence enthroned as the king over his creation. He's infinite and powerful, and yet he's personally draws near to his people. That is the God of Genesis 1. And the question of why, why did God create? Why did God create the world? Why us? I'll tell you why he did not create it. It wasn't because he was lonely. In the Trinity, there is perfect fellowship, perfect communion, but rather creation out of love. Scriptures say God is love, John, or 1 John 4. And from all eternity, what we find before creation of the world, from all eternity, is the Father loving the Son. And then that love in creation is poured out. And the point of it all is worship. God alone is worthy of worship. We are to center our lives on God alone, and that is where we will find our joy, our happiness, our peace, our fulfillment, our purpose. So Genesis 1, we could, we could think of Genesis chapter 1 as a wide-angle lens, okay? It's the view of the creation of the world and humanity. But then in Genesis chapter 2, the the lens focuses in, it zooms in on the creation of Adam and Eve in relation to God, creation, and each other. And so let me pray for our time in Genesis chapter 2. Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would um, help us overcome any resistance of our minds and our hearts. Help us to sit under your word in a humble posture pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, convict us where needed, and thank you for your word. I pray that what we would walk away with is a great sense of awe of what you have done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx, stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So about a month ago, as I was up here doing the dedication of our tithes and offerings, I had asked for you all to be in prayer as a church for a retreat that I was going to be attending up in Michigan, uh, Michigan, a, a camp called Higher Ground. And this retreat was for juniors and seniors in high school, many of whom were coming from broken homes. This was a major emphasis of this particular camp. It's it's a camp really for those that have experienced uh, fatherlessness. And so, as I was speaking to these kids, they, they know brokenness, broken homes, broken promises, broken lives, broken hearts. So, my first message of five messages I took up Genesis 1 and 2, and this was very intentional because I wanted them to go back and I wanted them to see the goodness of a heavenly father. But I started it this way. I started with the comment that we are are suspicious of God. We are suspicious of God's goodness. And based on the three enemies of the soul, the world, meaning the world that's set in opposition against the Christian, the flesh, meaning our sinful nature, and the devil, meaning the devil in the demonic realm, the three foes, enemies of our soul, cause us, tempt us to be suspicious of God. Questions like, well, let me say it this way. Questions that I think we can answer theologically 
but they still plague us deep within our hearts at times. Is God really good? Is, is the good life really found in Him and following Him? Is God in control and in power? And if so, why does He allow certain things to happen to our lives? Does He really care? So I began with Genesis 1 and 2 because I wanted to show them the way that things were supposed to be. Wanted them to see the goodness of God. I wanted them to understand with as much depth as possible the goodness of their heavenly Father who fashioned Adam and Eve, gave them a great world to delight in, and called them to great work as well. I wanted them to be able to look back at the goodness of God and then to be able to look forward as well because Genesis 1 and 2 just gives us a taste, a taste of a greater reality to come, paradise with God in its fullness. So we need to be reminded constantly to look back and to look forward. In fact, uh, I need to be reminded of this so much that I I hung a picture on the wall in my office. Um, It represents God's story as it unfolds in the scriptures. And there's four panels to this picture. Essentially, it's creation, Genesis 1 and 2. It's the fall, Genesis 3. And then it's redemption, that we see this promise from Genesis 3 on that a Savior will come. And then ultimately, there's this fourth panel of the consummation, or we could say the recreation, or we could say the kaboom, right, when Jesus returns. So, this, uh, I actually took a picture of my picture uh, for our purposes of just walking through this, because I wanted to pick these four panels. In the very first panel, the label of this panel is life. This is Genesis 1 and 2. You see this glorious tree in the middle of this panel. To the left are chickadees, representing all of creation that sings praise to God. And then there's this bright red apple that represents the provision of God in his creation for Adam and Eve, but also the prohibition to stay away from evil. But then we see the second panel. This is the panel labeled loss. The first one's life. This one's labeled loss. And this panel is ugly. It's dark. You have a tree that's withered. And then sitting to the right of the tree are two ravens. One is looking back and one is looking forward. The one looking back is looking at paradise lost. But there's a raven looking forward to suggest that there's more to the story to come. And then we have this third panel. This panel shows a tree that's back in bloom. It has its leaves. It's not as glorious as the first tree of of Genesis 1 and 2, but it's a full tree. And in the middle of this tree is a cross. And to the left of the tree are butterflies, representing life from death. And above this tree is an egg, representing present life, but a fuller life to come. And this, this panel is labeled love. And then we get to the fourth panel. And there's something different about the fourth panel. You see this this tree, but this tree is 
larger and more full than the rest. In fact, the artist rendered in such a way that the border, it's, it's cut off by the borders. It's not, you can't capture the whole tree. And you see to the left of it an abundance of fruit. This is the tree of life with all of its fruit. And this panel brings to mind this. 1 Corinthians 2.9 What no eye has seen or no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This panel depicts this glorious world of the new heavens and the new earth. But again, this tree, it's cut off just to suggest we can't even fathom or imagine the fullness of what this will be like. And this picture reminds me we're in the middle. We're in the middle. We're in the middle of the creation of of Genesis 1 and 2 and the recreation of the new heavens, new earth. And in the middle, there's loss. And oh, do we experience this loss in a fallen world. We feel the effects all around us. But we have to be able to look back to Genesis 1 and 2 to really grasp the goodness of God. And as we do, it should lead us to awe. A-W-E, capital, bolded. The Christian life is to be characterized by awe. And as we understand and grow in the grasp of the goodness of God, our grasp of awe increases. And so really what I want to do this morning, as, as God helps me, is just to focus, what does it mean in the, under the goodness of God um, to live in awe based on God's world and to live in awe based on the good work that God has called us to do that we see in Genesis 2. So with that, let's begin by considering the world of Genesis 1 and 2 and how it leads us to be in awe of God, awe of his goodness. Because the creation tells us a lot about the creator. Creation tells us a lot about the creator, but um, what if the creation was different than Genesis 1 and 2? I actually had this experience, this was years ago, I had a ministry event up on KU's campus. So I rode my motorcycle, it was during the day, rode my motorcycle up to campus. Did the event, and I had to come home, but the problem was by the time I came home, it was, it was dark. And the face shield of my motorcycle had broke off. No problem on the way there, I could wear my sunglasses. But you don't want to be driving home with bugs hitting your eyes going about 35 miles an hour. So I had to put my sunglasses back on. And my sunglasses are red tinted. And all I can tell you is, it was an apocalyptic experience. It really looked like the setting for the destruction of the world. Like I'm driving home and any lights are just eerie red. It's dark, it's gloomy, it's eerie. I'm literally, I can admit it, I was scared. It was, and I I found myself actually thanking God in that moment as I'm driving for something I take for granted. The glorious world that God has created. And then it reminds me of this glorious world of Genesis 1 and 2. What what do we learn about God from this world? Genesis 2, verses 5 through 9, begins by describing the world prior to the forming 
of Adam from dust and breathing life into him. And in verse 7 specifically, the Lord God formed the man from dust, from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, think about the goodness of God here, his intentionality. This word formed is like a potter fashioning clay for a particular shape and a particular purpose. The Hebrew word does not give us the sense that God just randomly grabbed a clump of dirt and was like, whatever, right? That's not what you get. You get the sense of God forming and fashioning Adam and Eve with great care, with great purpose. Then, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, God planted a garden. So again, we can't think of the Garden of Eden as a small garden plot where essentially you grow lettuce and carrots and tomatoes and maybe some strawberries if you're lucky so that you can produce a nice little salad. That is not the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, once again, it's this glory, like a glorious national park for them to delight in and enjoy. This is a place of awe. Think about, just for a second, just think, a little mind game here. What's the, think about the most beautiful place you've ever been. Got it? Yeah, Eden beats it, right? It's glorious, a place of awe. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now notice, what was in the garden was every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. As one of my seminary professors put it, God did not just create a bunch of broccoli plants, right? This is a glorious good God. Now, notice the two particular trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These trees also speak to the goodness of God. And we know more about the purpose of these trees as the scriptures continue to unfold. The tree of life is also mentioned in Genesis 3. And at this point in Genesis 3, that's after sin entered the world. So this tree of life is guarded. And the reason it's guarded is that if Adam and Eve reach up to eat from the fruit of that tree, they will forever remain in the state of sin and misery in their fallen state. And so God is gracious, protects that tree from them to be able to take from the fruit and eat. So where we see this tree show back up is in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the new heavens and the new earth where there is no sin. And then... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they eat of this tree, they will experience and know evil and death. And so God commands them to not eat of this tree. So here's the picture. We have a good heavenly father who dwells with his people in paradise. It's a perfect world. It's perfect relationships. It's perfect awe. God is essentially saying, you can have all this. Delight. Have all this. 
but not that. It's for your protection, not that tree. But we know in Genesis 3, Satan enters the scene and tempts Adam and Eve to be suspicious of God. Did God actually say you can't eat of any of these trees? The answer is no, that's not what God said. But Satan wants to sow these seeds of doubt. Don't you want to be like God, knowing good and evil? No, Adam and Eve, you shouldn't want that. Stay away from evil. Satan tempts him, you won't really die if you eat this. Oh, oh yes you will. But ever since Genesis 3, we've been suspicious of God. Let me illustrate this uh, this way, this idea of, of this idea of being suspicious of God, how this could play out. So, uh, 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 oh, an example that I example from my life would be this. Uh, last May, my wife and I um, we took our 25-year wedding anniversary. We decided to go to Cancun. If you might have remembered a few sermons back. I mentioned our first honeymoon. I took Tiffany to a place where a hurricane had hit and the island was devastated and it was still devastated. I felt like I owed her. It just took me 25 years to get there, right? So we're in Cancun and it is, uh, it's beautiful. Cancun was glorious. Day one, we hit the beach and the, the sand is beautiful, the water, is gorgeous. It's a little murky, but it's still like clearer than Clinton Lake, right? So um, I'm like, okay, we're here, day one. So I start to get in the water. The minute I step in, I hear a whistle. And I look up at the lifeguard. I'm like, you know, what? Lifeguard looks down, gestures like, no, get out. Uh, so I step back and I look down and in our resort, nobody's in the water. And all the other beach, as far as the eye could see, people are frolicking in the water. I'm like, what? Day two, same thing, sitting down there watching, nobody get in, lifeguard whistle at anybody that stepped near it, everybody else enjoying. Day three hits. On day three, the water was crystal clear. It was no longer, no longer murky. And what you saw in the water right below the surface were incredibly sharp rocks that would have produced, for anybody that went in the water, at the very least, a flesh wound, okay? And I realized in that moment, I thought, okay, how true this is of God at times. Like, approaching the world and being like, what? I want more. You're holding out on me but realizing what God has offered is an ocean of delight, but with the right commands, prohibitions, for us to be able to remain, you could say, safe, whole. It was, it was that moment with the lifeguard where I'm like, you got my back, you care for me. And the reality, how much more for God with our lives of desires for us to delight in him and our delight is in him, but we are not left to center our lives just on our own. 
We're called to center our lives on what he says is good. And how do we know we can trust him? Well, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So what this world leads us to is awe. Or we see the goodness of the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. It's this awe that God created this awesome world, but it's meant to point us beyond the world to its creator. I like how uh, I brought this book on our 25-year wedding anniversary uh, on, to the beach, a book called Awe by Paul David Tripp. And, you know, a fitting book for being in, in Cancun, but recognizing how does awe govern our life? He writes extensively about our awes to be caught up in God, but how what we, so often what we fall into is, is the substitute for awe, awe of self. But he writes this. I love what he says here. He says, God has created the physical world to be a mnemonic device. Okay, mnemonic device, aids in memory, right? To help us daily remember that we are not alone, that we are not at the center, that life is not primarily about us, and that there is a grander story than the stories of our individual lives. In other words, we have to be reminded of Genesis 1 and 2 to see the goodness of God before Genesis 3 hits and the world is devastated. But the truth is, we have an awe problem. Sin. It produces an awe problem. We often desire what is a violation of God's commandments in his will for us. We often put our lives at the center and seek to play God in our own lives, going beyond the bounds of what is good for us. And we have so many awe substitutes in our lives, right? We could look at lust. We could look at possessions and just financial debt because we want what we're looking for is awe it's the various gluttonies we want awe if I only had this then I'd be happy and whatever we fill in the blank with is something that we're probably in awe of in Genesis 1 and 2 reminds us that there's really only one place for awe the right awe it is in God it is in the worship of God. It is in the rest that God offers and that our hearts long for. Verses 10 through 14. The description of God's world continues. And here Moses gets really detailed. It's interesting. Gives a lot of detail about this river that splits into four rivers and, and about these precious stones that are in this, uh, in this region. And so the question is... Um, is, is Moses coming up with like a map for a treasure hunt? Is that what this is about? Uh, to find Eden? And no. Why the details of this river that flowed out of Eden? Why do the details of these precious stones? Moses is painting a picture of Eden as a divine sanctuary, as a garden temple. In other words, God is king over his creation. Eden is his temple. And so we see this river that he talks about, this river that flowed, but the reality is this river continues to flow, pun intended, through the rest of the scriptures. We, we see this river and ask the question, what is this river about? 
This river is symbolic for God's presence among his people. It's a river of mercy, of grace. It's a river of peace. The prophets speak of this river. Ezekiel 47 speaks of this river that originates from God's temple, and there it's a trickle. But this river continues to grow to a powerful river that cannot be stopped. And then we find this river again in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we get this glorious picture of this river and the tree of life that's in Genesis 1 and 2, but we see this again. It flows through the scripture, this river of grace, of mercy, of peace, until we will experience its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. Similar, the precious stones, they're elsewhere. They're not just, you know, Moses writes them here. Like, why giving us the detail? Well, we'll see them again in the building of the tabernacle and the temple. We see them in the priestly garments, the stones, the precious stones embedded to represent what's on God's heart, 12 tribes of Israel. And then we find these precious stones again in Revelation 21 in the temple of the new heavens and the new earth. So the point is, in Genesis 2, there's a description of this divine sanctuary, this garden temple. And what does God place in this temple to take care of it? It's an image bearer. It's one who is made in the likeness of God, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. One who will resemble God, one who will represent God, represent God's heart in having dominion over creation. So we have this glorious picture of this world that should leave us in awe of the kind of God that created the world and the God of whom we are to live our lives under. But then, this passage also speaks to the work that God calls and commissions Adam and Eve to do. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I want to concentrate on those two words, work and keep. The first word, work, avad, it's common in the Old Testament, and it can mean a variety of things. It can mean work, serve, labor, cultivate, worship. It's interesting that this same word can be both work and worship, as if they were to go together, and they do. The intention is that they would go together. Adam's work was to bear fruit in the world, both literally and figuratively, and to glorify God. Adam was a gardener, right? We are also called as gardeners in this sense, seeking to bear fruit and to glorify God in the work that God has called us to do. And our work, our gardens, whether it is in our church or it is at a job 
It's in our home, it's in our neighborhoods as citizens, our gardens, our work. What we are to have in mind is the heart of loving and serving and glorifying God and loving and serving our neighbor. That is the work that God has called us to. We are called to plant seeds and pull weeds. Plant seeds of the hope of the gospel. Pull weeds of sin out of our lives, others' lives. Then this word keep. This word keep in Hebrew, shamar, carries the meaning of to guard, to protect. It's actually the same word that is used for the priests in keeping the temple to guard and to keep, to protect the temple. Adam was called to guard and protect the Garden of Eden from all evil. And it's interesting in the next verse where God tells him to work it and keep it, the very next work is when God commands him to eat of everything except the tree of knowledge of evil. It says, guard and keep the Eden, guard and keep the Garden of Eden and, and stay away from that tree. Stay away from evil. Then, um, we see that we are also guardians. Guarding holiness. Okay, as I've thought about this over the years of working with college students, oftentimes I will get the question, you know, what's God calling me to do with my life? This idea of calling. And so as I've thought about it, thought through the scriptures. I think it's profound the way that God, um, the way God in his fullness explains this concept of the scriptures uh, unveil this concept of calling. First, there is this call. We could say, I think of it as a funnel. There's this wide call, a call for all creation to worship the one true God, right? All of creation. This is Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. This is Romans 1. That mankind is without excuse if we reject God because he's made himself plain through creation. So this calling to worship the one true God. But then there's this specific, this special calling revealed in Christ, revealed in the scriptures. It's a call to faith in Christ. And then once somebody is in faith in Christ, there's this third calling that we see throughout Scripture. It's the call to holiness, to live lives that are centered on God in complete holiness. And then this fourth calling. Oftentimes what I, what I talk with college students about, but God's a personal God. What's, what's the particular job he's calling me to or this particular relationship, this t- particular place? It's the particulars. And oftentimes college students can get really wrapped up and we can get really wrapped up in, in the, yeah, what, what, what are these specific areas of calling? But here's what is most important for those college students and for us. It is to center our lives on the second calling and the third calling. It's a call to Christ. And then from there, what does it look like to grow in holiness, that calling to grow in holiness, because if we get that figured out, the rest of it will take care of itself. In fact, if I could essentially quote the Sermon on the Mount, not be anxious about how it's going to play out, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest of it 
will work out, if I could paraphrase it. So our calling is the same as Adam's in this sense. Called to guard the holiness of God in our lives. So, if Genesis 1 and 2 is depicted as um, an Eden as a garden temple, a divine sanctuary, and if Adam is the priest in this temple, then what's the role? What's the role of the priest? What's the role of the Old Testament priest that we find? I'd say three things to this. They were to keep the temple from corruption. They were to obey God's commandments and lead others to obey God's commandments. And they were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to bring them to God. And as God's people, we are called into this priesthood. In fact, what does God declare to to the Israelites? Exodus 19, his people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So important to God, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. The same theme is picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What do these have in common? It's this that we should be in awe of. God rescues his people out of darkness and oppression claims them as his treasured possession, calls them to obedience and to proclaim the excellencies of God. How does all of this lead us to awe? First, I would say this. God has called us as his image bearers, his priests, to profound work in this world, to guard against corruption in a fallen world, to pursue holiness. We guard, called to guard our ears and our eyes. It's the things that we watch. It's the things that we listen to that are contrary to the heart of God. We guard our hearts, we guard our minds from the things that are unholy. We guard our lips from conversations that are holy. And I would offer this, that in a crisis, and I would call the pandemic a crisis, there are two opportunities for the church. One opportunity is to love one another and shine as lights to a dark and fearful world. But there is another opportunity, and it is for the devil to get a foothold. And our calling is to love one another. And what does it look like for the alternative, for the enemy to get a foothold? There's a list in Galatians chapter 5. It's the works of the flesh. It includes enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, 
divisions. This list is what Satan longs for, what he delights in. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians continues, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So here's my test. When I'm in conversations with others or with conversations with a group of people about others. And by the way, when I'm talking about this, just so you know, I have every spectrum in mind, every opinion in mind when it comes to how to handle a pandemic, not singling out any one particular group. When I'm in conversations with or about others, or in my own thoughts, or if I'm about to type something up to send it, the question is, is it holy? Is it governed by the fruit of the Spirit? We're all upset about something. So how about this? How about the priestly work of prayer? What do we do with our frustrations? And are we on our knees in prayer? Guarding ourselves, guarding others, guarding our church? Asking for help. Here's the beauty of of the reality, and this leads us to awe again. The awe of the goodness of God. That we have a God who does help. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And now I want you to listen to the rest of the psalm because over and over this psalm talks about how God keeps. That same word keep is the same word in Genesis 2 of guarding. He will not let your foot foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. It is the God, it is our God who keeps us, who guards us. And the beauty is we see this most closely in Jesus. So here's the reality. If we're in Christ, we are God's treasured possession, okay? Not just loves us, he likes us. We're his treasured possession, and he guards guards his possession. God guards his possession. And we see clearly in Jesus, who tabernacled among us, loved us enough, took on flesh, should leave us in awe, And then, whereas we see Adam failed in the garden because he did, he he succumbed uh, to the the voice of the serpent, of Satan, but we have this this, um, promise in Genesis 3 of one who will come and eventually crush the head of that serpent, and we see this fulfilled in the cross. So we could say we could see the glory and the awe of God in three gardens. There's this garden of Eden where evil hits, but a promise that Satan's head would be crushed. 
Then we see later on a different garden. It's a garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is in this garden, earnestly praying to the Father that, Lord, allow this cup, this cup of wrath to pass. Is there another way? But there's not. So Jesus is faithful to go the way of the cross, defeating Satan and sin and death. And then the Gospels end with this garden tomb, the tomb of Jesus, but it's empty. He's conquered. And where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? He's guarding. He's still keeping. What glorious news for us to be in awe of. So, I would, I just have to finish this chapter. I only have a paragraph on 18 through 25. So I'm just going to sum it up. This is the end of Genesis 2. God said it's not good that Adam is alone, so God fashions Eve as the perfect partner, compliments Adam, and they're commissioned together, essentially, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, subdue. Okay, so what's the calling of Adam and Eve in this garden? What's our calling? It is to fill the earth with the glory of God. It is to fill the earth, you could say, with disciples. So this mandate was given before the fall for them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with the glory of God. Then sin happened, right? But there's still this same calling in our lives. We see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, to go to all nations and making disciples, filling the earth with disciples. There is glorious work to be done. If I could quote a particular author who said, Our mission grows out of Adam and Eve's commission to multiply image bearers who expand the boundaries of God's glorious presence in Eden until it fills the whole earth. Our goal and mission is worship. I typed in parentheses, awe, right? That we might multiply more and more image bearers who worship the king. It's an interesting picture of the temple in the Old Testament. Within the temple is this light stand. This light stand shines light, but it doesn't just shine light inside the temple. This light shines outside the temple to the outer court as well. The court of a dark world. This is the calling. The calling is to be in awe of the goodness of God so that it shapes our lives. And part of the work that we are to do is the work of cultivating holiness in our own lives and in our own church. And then, as we're built up, as God's salt and light, it also goes through the doors. In the same way that the lampstand in the Old Testament temple would shine out into the outer world, we're called to go out as light into the outer world embodying the very glory and awe of God and seeking to draw people to himself. And what it takes is our own growth and holiness and then recognizing that holiness is to be extended to the best of our ability and prayers to the ends of the earth. And to that end, let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray that you would 
Help us to be in awe of you, of the world that you created that speaks of your glory, that we would see the goodness of your love that was poured out, that we would recognize, whereas we can be so suspicious of you at times, to be able to understand the blessing and delight that you have for us, to live our lives in light of you, live our lives centered on you, that we would be quick to obey, to love your scriptures, to submit ourselves to them. Pray that you would help us as a church to continue to grow in holiness, and I pray that the fruit of that also, that we would bear that to the world, that we would see more and more people coming through our doors who need Christ, those that have come to faith in Christ. Lord, would you do that? Help us. Thanks that you are God that we can be in awe of. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.